in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to finish the book today, I promise. <laughs> right, on Palm Sunday, we're going to move from, from the Old Testament theology of exile to First Peter and the New Testament, which is all about Jesus. I'm looking forward to starting that new book. Um, Martin Luther, about First Peter, said he, he loved it because the gospel is on every paragraph. It's, it's everywhere. And so it, it'll be encouraging. I'm looking forward to working through that, and it's really practical as well. So let's read our passage. This is Hope for the End of the World, Part 2. We're getting a vision of what will happen. Let me turn, it, turn my Bible. Here we go. This is God's word. Verse 36. Right. And the king, right, this is uh, some future king from Daniel's perspective. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and he shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become rulers of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to you and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on the, this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these things, these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, oh, my Lord, what shall become the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. 
And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. And this is God's word. It, this is true and trustworthy, spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come now celebrating uh, with an inexpressible joy that you've made Jesus known to us, uh, that we have hope in the face of real evil, selfishness, suffering, and death, that we can stand firm because you are our rock, our fortress, our shield, our good God, and I, and I pray that today you would help us understand that a little more clearly, a little better, uh, ready to, to give others, tell others the reason that we have for the hope within us. And so may our lives be changed to the point where we shine like the stars and people ask. And people wonder what, why, where, why we're able to do what we do because you are with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, whenever I read these things, I read them silently in my head. And so it's, it's, it's amazing how different it is to read it out loud knowing that other people are hearing this maybe for the first time. All right, if you remember the context, this is the end of a long vision with full of confusing things, and even Daniel's like, yeah, I hear. There are words coming out of your mouth. <laughs> but I don't fully understand. But he's described as someone who is wise and he understands, which means there's, there's enough here to give us hope. And then that, that's the way we keep talking about apocalyptic literature, the, the clarity here is amazing, and I'm hoping we can tap into that. And there's always going to be more questions. There's always more depth and technical detail you can go into, and I will happily give you those commentaries. And, and um, because it is, it's complex, and there are people who have done really good work to wrestle with what in the world this is trying to say to the best we can understand it with humility. And I'll just leave that there, and we're going to try and pull out here lessons for our community. Right? But there's three great words to describe Daniel's life in exile and, and, and where we're at, and I think that summarize the whole book. Uh, first is homesick. Right? Something we all understand, being homesick. You see this in Daniel. He was dragged as a teenager from home in Jerusalem all the way to Babylon, and he spent his whole life, he's now in his 80s, seeing this vision. He spent his whole life not at home, the majority of his life. Right? And we saw in, in chapter 9, the way he organized his life was at the end of the day to turn towards Jerusalem as if the temple was not destroyed, still praying. Right? He's still praying as if home is home. He's homesick. Right? I mean, that's what it means to be homesick in exile. Life has dragged us on an adventure we didn't sign up for through unasked for suffering. There's nostalgia. We look back to the good old days. I mean, maybe you feel some of that. Right? Israel experienced this homesickness. Some of them have gone home. Daniel watched them go home as he saw his prayers be answered. And this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, but when they started to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, you remember what happened? The foundation is laid, their home, finally their home, they're rebuilding, and those who remembered the glory days, right, they wept. This is not what we thought it would be. Right? They're feeling what the writer of the Hebrews calls the longing for a better country, longing for the city of God, longing for heaven, for resurrection. Right? So you get that idea, you feel it. The weariness and longing for rest, even while I'm at home, that my life is not how I want it to be. Uh, right? right? I'm trying to wake that up in us, because that's what the, the hope of the resurrection is for. Right? I sent an email this week about he writes. It's a Welsh word. You're supposed to roll your R's, but I'm not going to butcher their language. Right? It's a word for, for homesickness, for a home that you've never actually got to enjoy. It's a word that sums up people whose lives have never been what they wanted them to be. It's a deep feeling of incompleteness, he writes. Right? It comes from the Welsh for, for centuries now, right? 
They were the original inhabitants of the island. The, Brit the Anglo Saxons came, and now they're called foreigners in their own home. That's what Wales means, the other people. <laughs> foreigners. And so that word comes with this whole idea of, right, I'm, I'm homesick, I want more, I want my life to be better than it is. I'm, I'm protesting against how this world is. I want more. And I think we've all felt that in this last year. A feeling of life in exile, feeling homesick, feeling our hereith. And what I love about Daniel, the way it ends with resurrection, it's showing us we're not weird for feeling like there should be more. That you're normal. <laughs> that there is a hope out there that is objective, that is true, that is real for everyone, all people. It's not just a dream. There is a better country to be enjoyed. You should not feel satisfied with the way things are, that there is evil out there and it will be conquered, that, that, that this is trying to get God's people to look forward to the work that God has promised to do for them. Right? And this hope, the sure and certain hope of resurrection from the dead, it may sound like a fairy tale, what Daniel is showing you, he's saying, I've been shown this is coming. This present evil age ends with resurrection, with rest. There's a future after death. So what I want to do is, is work through this passage with us. Um, how do you get to resurrection? It's dark before you get to resurrection. Um, but... But it's worth, it's worth the journey. Right? The first thing you see in verses 36 to 45, right? we're picking up in the middle of this vision. And I'm calling this uh, the evilest evil, right? or the Antichrist. This, this section is about the Antichrist, I think. We'll, we'll get there. Right? But what we saw last week was this beauty of, of extravagant grace that while kings and kingdoms are clashing, this is before Jesus, there are all these kings, the kingdoms of Syria and Egypt, coming against each other, and it culminated with, with Antiochus Epiphanes. There, I got his name. Right? Again, coming and trashing the temple, the abomination of desolation, and it, and it retells that story, even as he forced the Jews to become culturally Greek. He convinced God's people to join him rather than uh, live faithfully the way God commanded them to. Right, so... In chapter 11, if you're reading this, at verse 35, it seems like it's still talking about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, a couple hundred years before Jesus. When you get to verse 36, it's notoriously hard to understand. Right? Because on the one hand, this could be more commentary on this, this, this king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes. But historians will tell you that, that the rest of the details, as you get to, to verses 40 to 45, they don't line up to what he actually did. Right? So skeptics will say, well, the Bible's not trustworthy. It's just bad prophecy. Some argue it's bad history, right? Somebody pretending to be Daniel wrote it, and they still got history wrong. Right? Those are the worst of the skeptics. But right for us who believe that the Bible is true and trustworthy, and useful for training in righteousness and it's God's inspired word, right? you got to come up with a different answer, even as it's hard to understand. And Just because you don't fully understand something, it doesn't make it less true, right? That's, that's the world of parenting. We're constantly explaining things to our kids that they don't understand. But just because they don't understand it doesn't make it less true. And so to me, what seems to make the more sense of the passage is this is describing a, an unparalleled evil ruler in the future, some ruler in the future who's the worst that Christians have called the Antichrist. All right? A person who embodies hatred of God and his ways, a person who is against Christ and his ways. I think that's what it's describing. Right? Like I said, I'm going to approach this with the humility of Daniel. I'm, I'm open to being corrected. But one of the interesting things as you read this passage is it also seems to describe many people who rule like this. So the Antichrist, this really, really bad guy, 
also then becomes a category to compare to how people use power today. Right? It, become, it just becomes a lens, and this is how the Bible uses it, to understand how to see evil rulers, even as we wait for the very last one to rise before the resurrection happens. Does that make sense? Right? So just like you read the Old Testament and you see glimpses of Jesus and Moses when he offers to take the place of sinful Israel, or glimpses of Jesus and Joseph when he forgives his brothers who tried to put him to death. Or even glimpses of Jesus in Daniel when he's faithful and in the lion's den. Right? That's what we say. We see glimpses of it, but they're all pointing to the real thing, Jesus. I think you can read this passage as about the Antichrist and get a better idea of, of how evil works as you see people like him in history. If that makes no sense, we'll, we'll, we'll just bear with me here and we'll, we'll work through this, right? So what is, an, what is the Antichrist? We've got to define our terms here. As you get into eschatology, the study of last things, right? The Antichrist gets thrown around. And Christ is the word Messiah, anti, opposed, or the opposite. Right? So one of the ways to learn what the Antichrist is like is to say he's... He operates by the opposite ways of Jesus. Right? So if Jesus is the one who brings justice to the nations by being gentle and lowly in heart, right? this is the beauty of who Jesus says he is. He's not harsh. He doesn't explode in anger. He doesn't get exasperated by the whining and failure of us. He's lowly in heart. Right? He's, he's not... Clinging to equality with God, he comes down in humility to make himself accessible to us. Right? To serve the exhausted and the exhausting. Right? That's Jesus' permanent character, as, as Dane Ortland put it. Right? Jesus can't stop being gentle any more than someone with blue eyes can change their eye color. It's just who he is. Well, the Antichrist is the opposite of that. He's the opposite of Jesus. So if Jesus is the, the beauty of humility, the Antichrist is the ugliness of pride. And that's how he's described. He, he magnifies himself above everyone, above him and every god. He worships power, the god of fortresses. He looks at others and says, you are here to serve me. Right? That's his attitude. Verse 43, he takes rather than gives, right? He's got this train of captives of the nations that he's plundered, so he's violent. Rather than the way of Jesus, which is what? People freely offering themselves and all the gifts that they've received and just give them to Jesus. Yeah, I want to follow you. Right? You could do some more comparison. Verse 45, right? Jesus is building a community where we help one another and we're helped by the living God and you're not alone. Verse 45 ends with the Antichrist coming to his end with no one to help him. He's defeated. Right? So you start with he does whatever he wants in verse 36. Right? He lives by his desires and he ends alone, defeated. Just telling you something about evil and selfishness there. It's a lonely way to live if you only live for what you want. Right. So we're starting to get oriented to this idea, right? The Antichrist is the opposite of Jesus. And, and the, in eschatology, and in the, in the study of last things, the, the, the story goes, right? History is going to come to an end, and there's going to be this last king who causes all kinds of trauma, tribulation, and trouble, who's the worst of the worst, Jesus just has to speak to defeat him, right? He's a defeated foe. And then resurrection comes. Right? So you're saying, why do we see the Antichrist here? Because that's how this story seems to go in this vision, right? You have the time of the end. There's this last battle. There's the worst trouble. And then chapter 12, there's God's deliverance, the resurrection to, to everlasting life or everlasting shame. It sounds an awful lot like the way the rest of the Bible describes the end. So it seems like this is the Antichrist. All right? So, let's 
pause there and say, what do you do with that? Right? This, is, this is just the, the, the ordinary story that every Christian in every generation has said, okay, here's how history is going to end. Right? There's, there's going to be a ruler who's opposed to Christ, his church, and his ways, but resurrection's coming after that. I think the message we're supposed to get is, is the same message Daniel's taught us over and over again. It's that God's kingdom does come, but it often comes through suffering. Right? Or another way to say it, this is here to tell us don't be surprised by the suffering that will come. Don't be surprised by the ugliness of other people's selfishness and our own. Sin, this is the message over and over in Daniel, sin has caused people to act like beasts, and so this is the super beast. It's giving you a category. This is, I'm opening to the whole book here, that you live your life as Christians in, in the lion's den with God with you. You live your whole life in the fiery furnace, right? being refined, being purified. Christians are being changed, made for the better, through the trials that God has led us through. Right? So don't be surprised. It's part of one way to look at this vision. Daniel, tell God's people, don't be surprised that it will get bad. This is part of the plan. And so for us, when you're in it, a great prayer to pray when life stinks comes from Psalm 22. Just what Jesus thought about and prayed when he was on the cross. It's God be with me. Do not be far off, Jesus prayed in verse 19. Save me from the lion's mouth. And then as it goes on, if you, at celebrating God's deliverance, then I will praise you, and the families of the earth will join into that praise. Right. So if you're not surprised by suffering, and you're crying out to God to be with you, gives you the freedom to tell someone else about God's power made perfect in your weakness. So, that's where we started, right? That we're, we're talking about the Antichrist. He's coming. But it also gives you categories to understand evil right now. Right? You get both end. And so what I want to do now is, is let's look at the problem of the Antichrist. And there is a problem. And I think you'll hear it, right? One, it, here's, here's the first problem, right? When you come to eschatology, everybody wants to know who this guy is. Let's give him a name. Let's call him Obama, or let's call him Trump, or let's call him the name of the political candidate that I don't like. Or, right, this is what, and I think this is part of what Christians do is we're in the position of weakness, and we look at people in power, and they're not using power to serve, they're using it to serve themselves, which looks like the Antichrist. Right. Nothing says he's going to be American, so I don't think that's the point, but it does help us understand the nature of evil. Because this is what every generation of Christians have done. They've named the Antichrist. It was the Roman Empire at one point. At one point, it was Muhammad as he started Islam and, and raced across the known world with the sword, denying Jesus was, was human. Uh, Protestants in the Reformation, it's the Pope. Right. Catholics in the Reformation, it's Martin Luther. In the, in the Revolutionary War, right, it was King George. They were saying, he's the Antichrist. We've got to rise up against him. And you're right, you might as well throw Hitler out there. Because they all have something in common. They use power for their own good, to magnify themselves above everyone else. Right? And so, first point, right? Just be comfortable not knowing exactly who this person is because it's trying to give us a category for how evil works. Knowing that there will be someone who embodies this eventually. Right? And that's, that's the second problem, right? There's an antichrist, and there are antichrists, right? There are those, there's the worst, and there's those who are like him, right? This is, this is the perspective of the New Testament. I'm not making this up, right? There's the man of lawlessness, 
But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the world. There's people like him. 1 John 2.18, the Antichrist is coming. You all know that. But right now, there, there were people who are among you. There are Antichrists. Children, it is the last hour. You have heard the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, and that's how we know this is the time of the end. And he's describing people in the church who came, taught things against Jesus, and then left. Right. That's what I'm saying. What, what's here in Daniel 11, this person, this figure, is describing the nature of evil. And someday it'll be someone literal, but it also gives you categories to understand the nature of the human heart. Antichrists. There's two ways to live. Like Christ or antichrist. Right. So let's, this is the problem. Let's describe the antichrist, just based on the words here. Tell me who you see in the, in the portrait. Right. Verse 36, he does whatever he wants. And then he shall exalt and magnify himself above all others. It's someone who rules, making it all about him. That's the default description. Right, this, is, this is the whisper in the garden to Adam and Eve. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's all grown up and shown to, how, to, to see how ugly that, that, that lie is. Right? To do whatever you want, to be like God, doesn't result in good things. Right? See, that, that's the mystery of lawlessness. I make life all about me. Number two, verse 37, he doesn't care about spiritual truth, only what works for him. Right? It says he's going to pay no attention to the God of his fathers or any other God. And I know we're an individualistic society, so to, to abandon the faith of our fathers, um, it, it doesn't like, hit us with that same guttural revulsion the way it would some cultures. But that's, that's how the Bible talks about faith. Right? Parents, teach your children. Tell, tell your children what God did in Egypt. God works in families and generations. And, and what this is describing about this king is he doesn't care about what's true if there is a real God. He, he's choosing a God that works for him, the God of fortresses, the God of power. So his whole approach to spirituality is what works. What works for me. Even as he worships power. It's a military image, the god of fortresses. It's pretty ugly, right? It's, I want to be in charge so I can take and get what I want. Right? And those who get in my way, he devotes to great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Ends in a lot of violence. Now, verse 37 again, he won't regard the desire of women and there's a couple ways to think about this. And this is really humbling and ugly. Right? On the one hand, it could be just referring to the spirituality that women prefer, right? Which God they prefer. And that's, that's part of it, I think. But you, you can also take it literally. Right? There's, there's different translations here. Right? In the desire to make life all about me, I don't care what women want. And all that ugliness that you can just follow through the whole story of humanity. Right? Women treated like objects to be used. I don't care about the desire of women. It's antichrist. Right? I mean, it doesn't require too much imagination to go into that. Especially in a culture that glorifies pornography. Right? It's antichrist. And in, in John 8, there's a beautiful story about Jesus that illustrates all this. Right? In the desire, you remember the story in John 8? In the, the desire to trap Jesus, these, these leaders who are supposed to be like God, right? Embody the do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with their God. Well, they conspire together to get a young man to seduce a woman in such a way that they can actually get caught in the act of adultery and then be vulnerable to the penalty of the law, which is stoning by death. 
Because the only way anyone could ever receive the punishment is you have to be caught by more than one witness. That's the penalty of the law. And of course, in the story, right, the, 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 the religious leader is the only one who, who's dragged in front and shamed and humiliated and whose desires are not taken into account at all is this poor woman. The dude who participated in this act, he is nowhere to be found. It's part of the ugly injustice. Right? And you remember this, the story of Jesus. What does he say? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone as he's writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. And one by one, from oldest to youngest, they all walked away convicted of their own evil. And he says those wonderful words, has no one condemned you? Looking into the eyes of this shame-filled woman. And she says, no one. No one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. From now on, go and sin no more. So you got a picture of both Christ and Antichrist. Someone who doesn't care about the desire of women, who doesn't care about the truth. They only want power for it to work for them. They didn't care about the faith of their fathers, what the scriptures actually say. They only care about getting what they want. And Jesus was pushing back against that. There's another way. So as you, we just described in general the Antichrist, right? Who do you see in that portrait? It's not as black and white. The, I mean, if the essence of sin and evil is my will be done at the cost of others, that makes it much more personal. Right. Paul was serious when he said, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, perhaps even for a good person, someone would die. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet anim- enemies, antichrist, doing what we wanted, Christ died for us. That's why I call it the problem of the Antichrist, because you read this, and Daniel is always describing sin as kings ruling, using power to do whatever they want, which sounds an awful lot like every human being since the fall. This is just a culmination of the worst. This is why we're homesick. Right? You go home, and my, we're in our home country, our, our lives are not the way we want them to be because I'm alienated from myself. The mystery of lawlessness is at work in me, and it's at work in others, which makes me feel like a stranger, longing for something better. So where's the hope? And this will lead us to the table here. Right, like I said, you got this picture Right, the Antichrist rises up, he has power, there's a last battle. Um, he, he plants his tents in the glorious land on the glorious mountain. This is Israel between the sea, but you know, I love that line from T.S. Eliot that someone parodied. Right, The Antichrist comes in with all sound and fury, but he goes out with a bang. He doesn't come in, go out with a bang, he goes out with a whimper. And this is how the world ends. Right? Or as Martin Luther wrote, one little word shall fell him. Jesus, all that great power under the sovereignty of God. He'll come to his end with no one to help him. And that's the hope we need, right? In the face of real evil, real suffering, we need to know that injustice will be dealt with. Last month, I've been reading posts from my friend in Myanmar uh, from, from a classmate, I should be more realistic, right? We, we were in the same classes together. She's now a mom of young children. Posting pictures of protests outside her door and posting pictures of young kids just brutally killed because they want to be free. Right? And prayers are, thank God we made it through the night. Right? So if we need the evil out there to be dealt with. Right? And at the same time, we need the evil in here to be dealt with. Right, so you get to chapter 12, it says at that time, at the end of the Antichrist, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, there will be such a time of trouble as never been seen till there was a nation at that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's an amazing statement of what's to come. It's the clearest place in the Old Testament we have. This is what's going to happen after death for everybody. The resurrection of all people to everlasting life or everlasting contempt. It's an earth-shattering statement. Everyone will die and then wake up and see God's face. Embracing you, (laughs) welcoming you, everlasting life, it's God walking with you, or everlasting contempt, which is, depart from me, I never knew you. There's nothing to this relationship. Abhorrence. The way you look at people who treat you like dirt. Go away. And I know it's tempting as you think about, right, if there are people who are going to rise to everlasting contempt and everlasting shame to say, as ah, is Old Testament pessimistic judgment stuff. It's all doom and gloom in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus talked about this moment more than anyone else in the Bible. The last judgment. That's his mission. To save God's people from the judgment they deserve. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 5, right? I have been given authority by God to execute judgment on the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. But don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when everyone who's in the tombs will hear his voice, that's Jesus' voice, come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And that's Jesus. So if we're talking about the Antichrist and recognizing the mystery of lawlessness is in me, knowing I have a court date with my father uh, who's appointed Jesus to be my judge, the question is, what hope is there for any sinner? How do you avoid judgment? And Daniel tells us it's all those whose names are written in the book shall be delivered. All those written in the book. What in the world is the book? And this is the hard part about Daniel is it assumes you know a lot of the story that came before. But there's a story in Exodus 32 that this is what Brandon taught on for weeks in Sunday school. Right, when Moses says, they're at Mount Sinai, they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Moses has been away for 40 days. He's up getting the Ten Commandments to be inscribed, telling everyone, how, here's how you live life with God, and here's how you love your neighbor. Well, Moses has gone too long, and the people get way too creative. They come to Aaron, the high priest. They make a God. They, give him all, say, they tell him to make us a God. Show us, make us an image of Yahweh, because we can't see him. So they give him all kinds of gold. He makes, out pops his golden calf. And the way they worship and celebrate, right, it's, it's, a, it's a wild party. I mean, it, it's, it's similar to Mardi Gras on the depravity scale. Of course, God's furious because they know they've already been given these laws. And he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. That's the living God. And then the beauty of the story is comes when Moses, the faithful one, says, and he's pleading, God, forgive them, and if it, by any means possible, if possible, blot me out of the book so that they can be forgiven. Right. And so you get two things from that story. One, sin's recorded. It's written down. Nothing goes unnoticed. And two, Moses gives a category for perhaps someone can can pay the price for us, can stand in the gap. If possible, blot me out of the book so that they can have their name inscribed in the book. Which helps us now see what Daniel 12 is saying, that all those whose name in the book that will be delivered, rescued, resurrected to everlasting life, right, Everyone in that book is a sinner. You can't avoid it. Just read Daniel, right? He's, he confesses the sin of even God's people, even himself. Doing antichrist-like things. Saying, my will be done, 
not your will be done. And so the book itself is a record of all those who've been graced, whose names are written down. How do you get your name written down? Well, centuries later, Jesus the Messiah would come, the Christ, the one Daniel's waiting for, and he said astonishing things like, believe in me and you will have everlasting life. You won't be condemned at the last judgment. You won't know condemnation if you believe in me. He set himself up as the way to get your name inscribed into this book. Right. How? Well, by taking the contempt, the shame we deserve. That's what happened at the cross. As one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as someone whom people hid their faces from. As he let himself be numbered with transgressors in order to make sinners righteous. It's amazing grace. That's how you get in, through faith in Jesus. Revelation 13, you can turn there in your Bibles. We're almost to the end here. It gives us more clarity about the book and about whose names are in it. As it makes, chose the book to be the Lamb's book of life. This is Jesus' book. Right? And in Revelation, right, it's, it's just retelling, it's using all these Old Testament images to show you Jesus in, in a clearer way. And it describes a beast coming out of the sea, and it sounds an awful lot like the beasts of Daniel. And then there's a super beast, and it's bla- uttering blasphemies against God. And then in verse 8, right, all these people are gonna, who are dwelling on the earth are going to worship this beast. They're going to align with this antichrist. But in verse 8, it says, All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so the, the portrait is, who are those who do not act like the beast? Who are those who stand differently in the culture? Who are those who are courageous, who stand firm, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord because they know Jesus. It's those whose names were written in the book before the foundation of the world. What a statement. In the Lamb's book of life who was slain. Do you know what that means? Here's the story of the book. It seems like before the foundation of the world, what we're being told, there was some kind of conversation between God the Father and God the Son where the Son says to the Father, for their sin to be forgiven, for their names to be in my book of life, you're going to have to blot me out, let me bear their contempt. Write them in my book. Give them my reputation. Give them my righteousness. I will pay for it for them. The Lamb who was slain, that's what the Lamb does. He pays the price. It seems like the Father must have said, In love, yes, I will give up my son, my only son, the son whom I love, for the moral failure, for the sinner, for all those who trust Jesus. It's amazing. I mean, what John wants Christians to going through immense trouble or feeling all that cultural pressure to change what you believe because everyone else believes it, look at how loved you were at a cost even before you were born. That since your name is in the Lamb's book of life before you were born, and since you will be resurrected to everlasting life, since you have this golden chain that begins before creation and ends with after your death, and you are held secure in the middle, right? Don't be afraid. You're not condemned. You're going to be carried through Judgment Day. Jesus paid the price for you. Jesus went through Judgment Day on the cross. For everyone whose names are written in the book. And the way you get there, according to John, faith. (laughs) Faith in the Son. That's all it takes. That's John 3.16. God so loved the world. What a messy world it is. (laughs) 
that he gave up his only beloved son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you believe now, you don't eat right now, you do not stand condemned. That's amazing. So that's the question that Daniel's putting forward, and he's, he's painting a picture of hope of what will happen, and we as Christians look back and say, this happened. And so the question is, have, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you trusted in him um, to take the shame we deserve? Right. I'd say we could stop there, but let's look at the hope. All right, look at the resurrection. <clears throat> Daniel never figures out when this is going to happen. He's just said... Well, go rest and you'll rise again and you'll be there at the end of days. But what I think is helpful for us as Christians, eschatology is meant to be encouraging. It's not meant to freak you out. <laughs> right? If you're a Christian and you're in Christ, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before all things were made, right? and Jesus worked these things out in real space and real time, and then the Spirit came and found you and brought you into the kingdom, right? Eschatology, the end times of the portrait of the future, is meant to encourage you, to give you courage, to persevere, to keep going. Right? So if you're terrified of what the end times will be, right, look at Jesus. That's, that's the whole point of these, these, these visions. There's a way to get through it. It's Jesus. Right? It, the purpose is when you feel homesick, when you feel the heterite, when you feel that protest, my life is not how I want it to be, you look at the resurrection, you look at Jesus, you look at your future in order to inform how to live right now. Right? And Daniel is telling God's people in verse 13, resurrection is coming. And that's where we look. That's where we go. Right? It's an astounding statement. In verse 13, all right, Daniel gets done. He hears his vision. says, yeah, I heard it, but I don't quite understand when will these things happen. And it, there's a whole bunch of numbers um, that, again, I think are just trying to get you to say, yeah, you don't know. Just rest and let God be God. Yeah, God is sovereign over history. Let that be enough. Right? But in verse 13, Daniel's given a picture of what happens to the Christian. An allotted place is waiting for you at the end of days. Right. So you can rest is coming. And you know what that word is? Some, some Bibles might say inheritance. Right? It's the same word used to describe what God's people got when they came into the promised land. Their inheritance. Their lots. <laughs> their portioned land. And the nation of Israel received homes they didn't build, fields they didn't plow, wealth they didn't earn when they received the gift of the promised land. Right? It was a gift to Israel, God's son. Right? So this is all sonship context. If Daniel is receiving after the resurrection an inheritance, it's a gift. And an inheritance is given to the son. Right? A greatly loved son. And for us as Christians, Jesus is the beloved son who died to secure our inheritance, which means he's sharing in his inheritance with us and with Daniel. And so this gives you a picture of what's coming at the end. Everlasting life is a life of being God's son forever. <laughs> Adopted. Being loved forever as Jesus is loved. In a home after death, on a new heavens and new earth, in the promised land, that is freely given to us through faith in Jesus. It's all a gift. Right? This is the world of the sure and certain hope of resurrection from the dead. It's, it's an allotted portion waiting for us at the end of days. First Peter makes it more explicit, and we'll get there. But I just want to encourage you, when you're feeling that homesickness, as we all are, especially in the last year, as you're grieving, it's important to grieve what we've lost in the last year. We not only say to loved ones who die in Christ, we'll see you again. 
We can say that. We will see you again because you too have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But we also know that there's some mystery at work. (laughs) There is an inheritance waiting for us that we'll get back what we've lost. Right? A whole new life, physically embodied. That's what this is getting at. And the whole purpose, right, this is the whole purpose of Daniel, the wise understand. Right, if you know resurrection is coming, if you know life after death is coming, uh, you know how to live well in history. Right, that's verse 3 of chapter 12. The wise make others understand, and those who do, who point others to God's righteousness and how to live, you will shine like the stars in the sky. It's a beautiful promise. Your your face will reflect with the very warmth of the sun. That's how they describe Jesus. (laughs) You're going to be radiant. You'll be a little Christ. You'll be a Christian. I mean, Paul, the way he applies this in Philippians chapter 3, he says, look, you're surrounded by wickedness. You're surrounded by a crooked and twisted generation. But here's what I want you to do to show that you understand the resurrection of Jesus. Do all things without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless, innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, stars in the sky, holding fast to the word of life, Jesus. So how do you apply chapter 12? Complain less. Stop arguing over who's in charge. <laughs> right? That's that word disputing. It's about it's what the disciples did. Who's going to sit at the great spot next to Jesus? And Jesus turns around and says, Hey, the way to follow me is to be like the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Go tell someone about him. Let's pray and let's, we'll come to the table. Father, there's a lot of information this morning, and I pray as we had our imagination uh, shown the glories of the kingdom, uh, showing the glories of Jesus, you would make us wise, you would give us, show us our living hope, and then that you would equip us to be a people who do things without grumbling or complaining, uh, who, who love Jesus, who, who hold on to this hope with inexpressible joy that, that, that Peter tells us, and so... I pray for us as a church that we would be a community that that grow um, together in Christ, able to tell others about the hope that we have received in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.